You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. The book of Isaiah. Again, if you're a visitor, welcome. We are uh, in the mornings uh, looking through the last chapters of the book of Isaiah, and we've come to Isaiah 51 from verse 17. Um, I don't know, Jacinth, if we're able to get that up on the the screen or not. I'm sorry I didn't bring you a PowerPoint, but just the, even the words, verses 17, Isaiah 51, verses 17 to 23. Awake, awake, rise up, Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of His wrath, you who have drained to its dregs the goblet that makes people stagger. Among all the children she bore, there was none to guide her. Among all the children she brought up, there was none to take her by the hand. These double calamities have come upon you. Who can comfort you? Ruin and destruction, famine and sword, who can console you? Your children have fainted. They lie at every street corner like antelope caught in a net. They are filled with the wrath of the Lord, with the rebuke of your God. Therefore, hear this, you afflicted one, made drunk, but not with wine. This is what your sovereign Lord says, your God who defends His people. See, I have taken out of your hand the cup that made you stagger. From that cup, the goblet of my wrath, you will never drink again. I will put it in the hands of your tormentors who said to you, fall prostrate that we may walk on you. And you made your back like the ground, like a street to be walked on. Okay, um, we're having a, a baptism, and uh, I have to confess that when I looked at this passage, and I thought we've got the baptism, I thought, no way, I can't preach on that, uh, the Hobson's baptism. Um, it's about children lying dead in the street. So, you know, it doesn't seem very fitting, does it? And yet, I couldn't get away from it, and I kept looking at it and kept looking at it, and I thought, okay, no, we're going to go with this, because... It's, uh, it's something actually very, very wonderful, and it, it, it does illustrate and does demonstrate what we are doing. Now, one of the problems I think here is this, that an awful lot of people think we've come to church, people outside might think they go to church because they're trying to get away from reality. It's quite funny how often I get messages saying, we live in the real world, you're living in a pretend world. And maybe a lot of religion is like that. But I'm afraid if you've come here this morning looking for an escape from reality, you're going to get a rude shock because the Bible is just incredibly realistic. In fact, it's so realistic that it is painful. And as we look at this, I think that you will uh, understand why. There is an expression that goes, talks about bringing up children in faith and not fear. And I think that uh, any parent, any new parent, those of us who are not parents, we can all understand why we might be afraid. We can be fearful of many, many things. Fearful of pregnancy, what if it goes wrong? Fearful of the birth, what if it goes wrong? Um, That sense of relief that happens when uh, uh, having never been a granddad, you become one, and your grandchild is 
alive and well, and your daughter is alive and well, because things can go wrong. And there's concern you have for very small children if they slip and if they fall. And I know that there are parents who come here and they've just had a baby and, and they bring their baby in. They take the baby up to crash, but they can't leave the wee one. Because what if something happens? I don't know, like they cry or get a dirty nappy and there's a whole bunch of crash people there, but never mind. You know, they can't do without me. What if something happens? There's just an instinct that we have. Um, your child goes to school. There's, you're concerned about your children crossing the road. You're concerned about uh, accidents that may happen. Your teenager's five minutes late home and you start speculating and, and worrying about all the different things that could happen. If you live a life like that, fear paralyzes. Faith is not wishful thinking, but faith sets us free. Faith is being secure in God and in his love for us. And as we'll see, that's not just a cliche. So, we begin by looking at this, and it, it, God is first of all telling his people that they have to waken up. They have been saying to God, why are you asleep? Everything that could go wrong has gone wrong. We've been exiled. We've been taken out of the holy city. We've been scattered. Many of us have been killed. At the end of the passage you read, it talks about you made your back like the ground. There are mosaics of Egyptians and others in the culture that when they conquered a culture, they made the people lie down so that they could walk on them. And that's what had happened to the Jewish people. And they've been crying out to God saying, Lord, where are you? Why, why are you asleep? Why, why don't you care? And God says, no, you need to wake up. You need to realize what has happened. You need to realize what I have done. And I would suggest to us that all of us here we need to waken up to what is happening in our world and to waken up to what God has done. Now, you'll notice through this, there's an image that's used all the time of the cup, and that one is not necessarily familiar to every one of us. I mean, we know what a cup is. But in the Bible, in, in biblical culture, and in the culture of that time, the idea of a cup is its life. So, the Psalm 16, for example, verse 5 says, Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. You have made my lot secure. It's the blending together of all life's experiences for God's people. So, you know, you think, my cup runs over. Um, what's in your cup? I mean, uh, we had a lovely uh, wedding on Friday with uh, Simon and Kirstine, and I guess if you'd said to either of them, um, what's your cup like? Oh, it's just overflowing with joy. Well, if you like, the cup of our experiences is, is what's being spoken of here, and it's an image, one that is at first a very negative one, because he speaks of the cup of his wrath in verse 17. Now, why should we be afraid? This would be a very, very short sermon if I just said, no, no, not good to be afraid, you shouldn't be afraid, just trust, that's it. But actually, it is good to fear in some ways, to be aware. Um, for example, you, again, if we're come, talking about bringing up children, um, if you say, oh, I'm not going to be afraid, I'm going to let my child go with whatever adult they ever meet. 
that would just be insane. So it, it's a sensible person. I mean, I do fear sticking my finger in an electric socket. Not that I do it often. But, you know, if I was tempted to. There are things that you'd be daft not to be afraid of. And in the circumstances of God's people at Isaiah's time, and I think also at our time, but in a different way, there is plenty to fear. There's the image here of the trapped deer, the antelope caught in the net, the streets littered with the dying. Um, The book of Lamentations, which as its title tells you, isn't the most cheerful of books, says this about this experience. Lamentations 2.11, my eyes fail from weeping. I am in torment within. My heart is poured out on the ground because my people are destroyed, because children and infants faint in the streets of the city. They say to their mothers, where is bread and wine as they faint like wounded men in the streets of the city as their lives ebb away in their mother's arms? Arise, cry out in the night as the watches of the night begin. Pour out your heart like water in the presence of the Lord. Lift up your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint from hunger at the head of every street. Young and old lie together in the dust of the streets. My young men and maidens have fallen by the sword. You have slain them in the day of your anger. You have slaughtered them without pity. There is a cup that makes people stagger. The goblet that makes people stagger. You've seen the pictures of the refugees coming. And of course, there's all different kinds of political opinions and concerns that people have. But you have to have an absolute heart of stone not to be upset and concerned at the parents who will put their child in the hands of people smugglers and take them across dangerous waters into an unknown land because they are just so desperate. They're just so desperate. And that's what's being spoken of here, the cup that makes people stagger. And notice just some of the elements of it. There was none to guide. Verse 18, among all the children she bore, there was none to guide her. Among all the children she brought up, there was none to take her by the hand. Now, the her there is Jerusalem. It's God's city. It's the people. And it's saying that, you know, all these people have been born within this city and they've gone. Or there's none that's wise enough. Or there's none that's still alive who can guide and help. Because the community has been deprived of wise and effective leadership. And so the whole city is portrayed as a blind person groping around. The city is in confusion. I was thinking of that this week when I was thinking about, um, as one does, the city of Babylon. Because Babylon means confused. And uh, after the wedding here on Friday, um, the BBC actually came in and they did a very short, very short interview And afterwards, the two journalists and the cameraman were speaking to me, and uh, they were asking me further questions, none, of course, which would ever get on the BBC, but I was explaining about the issue, and some of you know this issue about 
the government is proposing to make a law that anyone can change their gender just by filling out a form without seeing a doctor or psychiatrist or getting any treatment, and that schools uh, are to be uh, teaching children. All teachers are to be re-educated so that they teach children that they can choose their gender. Now, 95% of people in Scotland know that that's insane, but, but not our governors and not our elites. And so I suggested this, and I was talking to them, and I said, it gets very confusing. And the guy says, why does it get confusing? I said, well, for a start, it does away with gender quotas. Because imagine you're saying, well, it's just a bunch of, um, you know, you're only allowed X number of men in this group, so you have to certain women. Well, fine, I want to be in this group, I'll just change my gender. I said, it does away with women's sport completely, just destroys it. And I don't know if you've seen this, but this is true. Everyone thinks this is just a joke, but it's true. The Iranian women's football team, you should see the photo of them. Eight of them are men, and they look like men, and they're, quote, awaiting gender reassignment. Strange thing in an Islamic country like Iran, but it is the number one country in the world for doing gender reassignment operations. It's a strange thing, but it's there. So I said all of that, and the journalist said to me, do you know, I don't think that people have thought about this. It's really confusing, isn't it? And that's exactly the point. God is not the author of confusion. The devil is the author of confusion. And what is happening in our culture, not just on that issue, but on numerous issues, what is happening in our culture is that there is none to guide. And that includes in the church. Because what you get from church leaders is just waffle. Well, we just all got to love one another and accept one another. Well, it just sounds good. It's not guidance, and it doesn't help. Be whatever you want to be. But look what God says in his word. There was none to take her by the hand. None to guide. And that's why, by the way, this particular issue that I just mentioned is really important. Not because there are not people who don't need help because they suffer from gender dysphoria. They do. And they should get help and support. But because it is a confusing world as it is to take very young children and to teach them even more confusing things is a form of child abuse. It's horrendous. But that is what is happening in our culture. People are so confused. Even the ones who think that they're certain, they are so confused. There is no one to hold their hand. You go and tell children you can be whatever you want to be. You are creating a nightmare for them in the future. But it's worse than that. There was none to console. Verse 19, who can comfort you? Destruction had happened, and there was no one even to empathize. There was no one to protect. Back in chapter 40 and verse 1, Isaiah is told, go, comfort my people, comfort my people. And the language that is used here, it's almost as though it's like God saying, I can't even comfort you. There is none, none to console, none to comfort. And I see that in our world. I see a world at a wider level, you say, who is going to help? You see it all happening. I mean, isn't it wonderful? It's just wonderful. Angela Merkel wants to welcome these refugees and says, come in. And then look at the mess that's happened. So the uber right wing go say, yeah, we've got to keep them all out. And the left wing go, it's all someone else's fault. And it's a mess, and it's a mess, and it's a mess. And the people continue to suffer. 
a world that lies under the wrath of God, a world that is destroying itself, is a world that cannot save itself. Whatever your views on climate change, let's just assume that it's true. Let's just assume that human beings are at least partly responsible for the increase in temperature and all the climate change that goes along with that. And so our politicians say, yes, 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 we're going to deal with this. We're going to do carbon this and carbon that and stop it all happening. And we sign up to deals. And what we do in our own country, which is horrendous, is that we say, okay, our carbon is lower because what we're doing is we're buying it from other countries. And so we sack our steel workers and buy the steel from China. And then we say, isn't it wonderful, though, because we've got windmills and we're keeping the carbon low. But in the rest of the world, we, we're not going to control the temperature. But there's worse than that. There's worse than that. That may be, well be a laudable aim to try and prevent us polluting and destroying the world. It is a laudable aim. But there's another kind of climate change that's occurring in our culture, and that is a spiritual and moral climate change. And it is more destructive than the physical climate change. Who is going to save us from ourselves? Is philosophy going to save us? Is religion going to save us? Is politics going to save us? Is a moralistic gospel going to save us? Are social measures going to save us? Are government laws going to save us? No. Filled, they said, with the wrath of the Lord. Your children have fainted. Some are lying dead. Some are incapacitated. In, earlier in chapter 50 in verse 2, it says that this even extends to the drying up of the sea. Your children have deserted you. In verse 20 where it says your children have fainted. It's interesting that uh, Calvin talks about this as being like the church. When you look at the state of the church in this nation today. Calvin says this, for many boast about being children of the church, but where is the man that cares about his mother's distresses? Who is grieved for her ruin? Who is moved so deeply as to put his shoulders to her support? How many betray her? And under pretense of this title of being her child, persecute her more cruelly and openly than her avowed enemies. He goes on to say, there are those who boast of being her fathers, who treacherously desert her when she implores their aids. And God's people look, and they're bewildered and confused, and they see their leaders, and their leaders are as worldly as the world, and as lost and confused. And so, there's this incredible picture in verse 20 of the antelope caught in the net. You've all seen Bambi with the big wide eyes. I don't know how many of you have been deer hunting, but uh, I, ha I have actually seen a deer caught in a snare. And it's the eyes, they're just wide with fear and confusion and hurt. And that is the image that is used here. It's the child looking up at the mother and father and saying, Mom, Dad, what's happening to me? I don't understand this. I don't get this. What's going on? They're paralyzed by fear, but not just paralyzed by fear, paralyzed also by the sense of condemnation. There are three ways, I think, to deal with this when we talk about the wrath of God. One is to shut your eyes and say, doesn't exist, doesn't exist, God would not condemn, nothing bad happens, 
bad things only happen to bad people, or there's maybe another way you can go. You can go the atheist route. Bad things are just random. It just stuff happens. That's the way it is. So let's be shiny, happy people. Let's smile. Who cares what's going on? Who cares about refugees from Syria? Who cares about people starving in South Sudan? Who cares about people being imprisoned for their faith in North Korea? Who cares? As long as we've got our television and our food and, and we've got our nice homes, who cares? And so the majority, I think, of our culture are people who live in a shallow and superficial world that nobody bothers. But I think there's another way that people handle this that's also not good. You can recognize the horror of sin. You can recognize the reality of God's wrath. When you can understand how God would judge us because of the mess that we made of the world that he created. And you can then go into darkness and despair. There's no help. There's no comfort. There's no future. But look at what is said. Therefore, God says, hear this, you afflicted one, made drunk but not with wine. He doesn't go on to say, you're doomed. He says, this is what your sovereign Lord says, your God who defends his people. See, I have taken out of your hand the cup that made you stagger. The cup of God's wrath had been removed. God is telling his people to wake up from their drunken stupor because he's saying, you're not condemned. The cup that made you drunken stagger is now being removed from you. Now, Notice something here that is very important. There's still terror on every side. They are still being oppressed. And the oppressor is still determined to destroy them. Back in verse 13, you live in constant terror every day because of the wrath of the oppressor who is bent on destruction. That is still there. Their circumstances have not changed, but the word of God has come to them. They are no longer condemned because God has said so. They are set free because the gospel of grace has come to them. Now, please note how this is a complete reversal of what the world would tell you. The world will tell you, we live in Disneyland, everything's basically okay. Don't you dare go to church or listen to, well, don't go to that kind of church. Don't listen to that man. Don't read that Bible because it will make you feel guilty and you're not guilty. You're free to be whatever you want to be. The word that you will hear will condemn you and cripple you and stifle you and squash you and repress you. Be with us. Shut your ears to what God says. And God says, listen, it is completely the reverse. If you listen to the world, you will be stifled. You will be squashed. You will be oppressed by the father of lies, the devil. You will be oppressed and condemned by your own heart and by other people. The only way that you can be set free is to listen to the gospel of grace that comes from God. So that whatever your cares, whatever your circumstances, whether you're lying in a hospital bed wondering if your cancer operation was successful or whether you're rejoicing because you've just got married, whatever your cares, whatever your circumstances, if you hear what God says, to you, you know that you are not condemned. You are free. You are in the ultimate safe space. 
And that's why the second cup that I want to mention, although it's not mentioned directly here, but it's implied here, is the cup of God's covenant. Because that is the reverse of the cup of God's wrath. God's wrath is deserved. God's wrath is upon a world that rebels against him, that shakes our fists at him, a world that says you don't exist, a world that says we don't want you to exist, a world that mocks at and despises his law and his people, a world that destroys itself. Do you know what the ultimate in God's wrath is? Do you know what I pray more than anything else doesn't happen? I pray that God doesn't say to our politicians and religious leaders, get on with it, Do do what you want. I'm leaving you. I would rather God came and struck us with plague than left us to our own devices because we will destroy ourselves as as certainly as, as anything is real and true. But here, it's different because it's God coming and he's saying, he's giving us a different cup. And you can see what that is. If you just reverse these things, there was none to guide. There was none to take by the hand. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He guides us. His, his word is a, is a light for our path, a lamp for our feet. He holds our hand. He is our Father. He protects us and loves us and guides us and keeps us. We have someone to guide. And then verse 22, look at this, the sovereign Lord. Now, what's really interesting here? Very interesting. It's a very unusual word that's used because it's a plural like lords, and it's a usually used of a relationship, a human relationship like between husband and wife. And the you here, by the way, is feminine. So God is using the image, as he often does, of marriage and of the covenant relationship between husband and wife to make it like the relationship between himself and his people. And I think that uh, Alec Motier is right when he says that what God is saying to his people here is not just that I am interested in the big things, the big picture, but also I am interested in the everyday things, the ordinary affairs of life. God's sovereignty comes into the ordinary affairs of things like sickness, bringing up children, just everything that concerns us. He is the Lord. He is our God who has committed himself to us and committed himself to our children. He is the God of absolute justice. It may appear as though there's chaos in the world. It may appear as though we are in the storm, but our feet are set on a rock that is absolutely solid. None to console, none to protect, but the covenant God who defends his people the covenant God who sends the comforter. Even that phrase, the antelope in the net, you know Psalm 124? It's just a beautiful psalm, quoting from the 1650 version, which is love. Even as a bird out of the fowler's snare is set free, so is my soul set free. You see, you you may not grasp this if you're not a Christian. You you hear all this stuff, you go, oh, really heavy, you know, blood in the streets, children dying, everything else. It's just, whoa. And it's, you know, religion is so oppressive. Well, it is. But humanity is oppressive. Many, many things are oppressive. But real freedom is found in 
Christ. And what happens is that as we come to know who Jesus is, as we come to know our sins forgiven, as we come to believe in Him, it's not that the storms disappear. It's not that everything turns out great. It's not that we never get sickness or we never experience depression or we're never discouraged or we never have trouble in our culture or our children are always perfect or, you know, we always have children or whatever it is. It's not saying that, but it's saying this, that in the midst of the storm, God is there and God is protecting and God has promised and He will always keep His promises. And so our soul is set free. And it gets turned. I've taken out of your hand the cup that makes you stagger. From that cup, you will never drink again. You will never drink again. You are a Christian When the devil comes to you and says, you've done this terrible sin, you've said this terrible thing, you've behaved in this particular way, you are doomed, you turn around and you say to him, no, because the cup has been taken away and God has promised that I will never drink from that cup again. And look what happens to the cup. It's handed over to the persecutors and the oppressors. John L. Mackay says this, the particular aspect of their conduct which exposed them to divine wrath was the relentless arrogance with which they had abused their position of power. Calvin puts it beautifully, impiety is always accompanied by pride and cruelty. For as the true knowledge of God renders many gentle, so ignorance makes them ferocious and savage. They who are ignorant of God please themselves and pour out unmeasured reproaches against God and those who truly worship him. The Lord will not only deliver the church from these heavy distresses, but will also lay upon her enemies the calamities with which she is afflicted. See, I don't look at the state in our country and think, oh, poor us, we're going to be squashed. Oh, the poor church, the poor this. Do you know what I look at? I look at the people of this country and I feel sorry more than anything. And I look at our rulers and I say, you have no idea what you are doing. You are playing with fire. You are shaking your fist at God and saying, huh, we don't need you. We will rule. And in their arrogance and pride and hubris, they think they can remake humanity in their own image. In their arrogance and pride and hubris, they destroy what God has created. And they will answer for it. Every single one will answer for it. And so I pray that God would have mercy on them, that they would come to see And for all of us, Revelation 14, verse 9, a third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink of the wine or the cup of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. When you decide to listen to God's word and say, no thanks, not for me, not my cup of tea, not what I want. What you're doing is you're saying, I'm choosing to drink from the cup of God's wrath. That's what I'm choosing. How foolish, how foolish. But for the believer, when you come to believe in Jesus, this is the wonderful thing. Maybe you've never had the experience of being drunk. But the drunkard, it's like the drunkard who wakes up and the sore head and 
what have I done and the depression and maybe I just go get another drink or whatever. And everything that's involved with that. Because it's not good. And you know it's not good. That's why we use the expression, it's enough to turn anyone to drink. But it's like the drunkard who wakes up or the addict who wakes up and reaches out for the needle and reaches out for another shot and reaches out for another drink. And it's gone. The drug has gone. The cup that made you drunk has gone. Father, said Jesus, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Here is why you and I as believers will never drink from the cup of God's wrath. And here is why Richard and Sylvie can bring up Lucas and Elisa in confidence and in faith and not fear. It's because of what Jesus did when he died on the cross. Now, when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and he says, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. What Jesus was doing was he was looking at a cup that was filled not with his own experiences, not with his own life experiences, and not with his own sins. He was looking at a cup that was filled with my sin and your sin and with the sins of the whole world. He was looking at a cup that was full of hell. And he said, he didn't say, oh, I'll drink that. He said, Father, if it's possible, please take this cup away from me. If there is any other way, take this cup because I know what's in that. I know what I have to experience. I have to experience the eternal hell of every single person who you've given to me. And if it's possible, no. But it wasn't possible because the only way for us to be saved was for Christ to drink. Rabbi Duncan says this, it was the cup of damnation and he drank it willingly and lovingly. You will never drink from that cup. Do you know the liberty that that brings? Do you know that I don't have to go tonight on my knees and, and worry and lie in bed not able to sleep thinking, what if I screw up tomorrow? What if I get things wrong? What if there are things in my past that I'm still not sure about? What if I don't understand this? What if I, you know, the Lord stands, the devil accuses, and the Lord stands and says, but I drank it, I drank it. I drank. There's nothing that you can add to the cup that I haven't already drunk. It's done. It's paid for. You will never drink from that cup. Can you grasp how liberating and wonderful that is? And that's why we come back to where we began. Wake up. Wake up, Christian, and realize who you are. Wake up what's happened to you. Wake up and realize that your chains have gone. Your heart is free. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. In chapter 52, we'll go on to next week, it talks about the uncircumcised defiled. Well, you've been baptized. You've been forgiven. You have been cleansed. You take the cup of the covenant. You receive the sign of the covenant, the grace and the mercy and the peace of God is upon us. I would not swap one ounce of the gospel. I would not swap one word from the Word of God for all the power, all the authority, all the money, all the words in this world, because there is nothing that this world can give me 
that forgives and changes and assures. If you are a Christian, rejoice in that. And even the circumstances that you are facing, it sometimes feels, doesn't it, like God's wrath is upon you, the heaviness and the hardness and the cruelty and the violence and everything all around. And you're like the children who have fainted. You're like the antelope caught in the net. But you need to look beyond the waves and you need to look to Christ and you need to realize you are not experiencing God's wrath. You are in a place of certainty and security with Christ. And I just pray that you would see that, not just with your mind. I pray you would see it with your heart and with your soul, and you would understand what it is. You are in Christ. Christ is with you. You have nothing to fear. What shall I fear? The Lord is with me. Of whom shall I then be afraid? And if you're not a believer, I'm, I'm honestly not trying to frighten you into the kingdom. I don't think that could happen anyway. But I'm telling you what the reality is. I'm telling you what the real situation is. I'm telling you you can't save yourself. I'm telling you nobody can save you. And I'm telling you that Christ stands before you and says, I will. I can. Come to me. Change. Change the cup. Take the cup of salvation and leave the cup of God's wrath. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Bless it to us. Help us as we reflect upon it. And oh Lord, we sometimes look up and we're so heavy hearted because we see a little of the mess. We see a little of what you see. We see a little of what made Jesus weep over Jerusalem. And we weep for our own nation and our own city. We pray that you would help us to... to trust and rely on you. Pray, our God, for any here who do not know you, that they would turn to you. And for those of us who do, that we would be constantly be looking to you as our rock and our shield and our defender. In your name we ask it. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.